0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is David. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. Whether you're in service or online, let me be yet another voice to welcome you. Thank you, JJ. All right, we continue today in our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark that we've titled Following Jesus. Have you guys enjoyed this sermon series? Yes? Awesome. Now, each week... We get up here, we open up the Gospel of Mark, and we dive deep into the teachings of Jesus. And we take those teachings and we apply them to us in our context today. Now, I am so thankful for Pastor Matt and Dan Donahue for taking the reins last week and filling in for me. What a powerful message Dan preached last week. Yeah, amen. (laughs) Amen. That was the second time I had heard it, and I think it blessed me even more the second time, so I hope it blessed you as well. Well, today we are in Mark chapter 13, and as much as I try every time I have the opportunity to preach to wring out everything from the passage that I am preaching on, I can promise you that today, there will be a lot of meat left on this bone. There are themes in this passage that I just simply don't have time to unpack. And so I'm not even gonna mention them because to do so would run the risk of leaving some of you potentially dazed and confused. And my intention is to leave you invigorated and encouraged. Now this teaching of Jesus in Mark chapter 13, which you'll find on page 825 in the Bible in the pew back in front of you if you wanna follow along, this is his second longest teaching. His first longest teaching is the Sermon on the Mount. This teaching we're going to go through today is referred to as the Olivet Discourse because Jesus delivers it from Mount Olivet right to the east, but facing, staring straight at the temple in Jerusalem. And this passage is long, 37 verses, so you can remain seated, but I would love it if you'd follow along. Now, something else to keep in mind. This teaching from Jesus takes place on Wednesday of Passion Week. Okay, This is two days before Jesus would be nailed to the cross. And he just finished watching the poor widow give all that she had as an offering to God. And that's what Pastor Kirk preached on two weeks ago. So we're going to pick it up right here. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, Jesus said? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Verse 20. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. And that time, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have appeared, have happened, rather. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Verse 32. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. watch. That is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, let me just scratch the surface in regards to the theological realm that this passage launches us into. This is eschatology, eschatos, last things, ology, the study of. This is the study of end times. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, great tribulation, rapture, antichrist, Armageddon, preterism, historicism, futurism, idealism. When is Jesus coming back? How is it going to happen? Obama was the antichrist. No, it's Clinton. It's definitely Trump. Do all the children just suddenly disappear like it happens in the movies? Someone in the Middle East sneezed. Quick, get the Dakota ring, open up the book of Daniel, and let's figure out what it means. Jesus' return is enough to make your head spin and give you nightmares. The unknown and the complexities make some Christians never want to think about it and others obsess over it. And you know what? That's exactly what the enemy wants. Because if we ignore Jesus' return, our mission here on earth will lack urgency. It is entirely possible to be so earthly focused that you are of no heavenly use. But if we obsess about Jesus' return, our mission here will lack cultural engagement because it is entirely possible to be so heavenly focused That you are of no earthly use. The first Christians, the early church, they were such effective witnesses for Christ not because they ignored Jesus's return and not because they obsessed over it. One of the many reasons they were so effective in their witness was because they thought rightly about Jesus's return. And that's my goal today. I want us all to leave here with the proper perspective on Jesus' second coming. Because I believe that if we believe rightly about Jesus' return, it will eliminate complacency, drive out our cultural engagement, and shape us personally. Now to do this, I have to fly over all of the speculation, all of the opinion all of the conjecture about what the end might look like and focus on two irrefutable facts that Jesus gives us in those 37 verses. Number one, the king is coming. And number two, no one knows when. But before we get there, there is a huge chunk of this teaching that we can clear up, and I want to do that. And a helpful way to think about this entire teaching from Jesus, at least it helped me, I hope it helps you, is a bit like this picture. This is a picture a few years back of our youngest daughter, Alden, and her best friend, Evelyn, at the peak of Mount Chikora up in New Hampshire. You can see the bald face of Chikora and the two girls are nice and in focus, right? But to the left, way in the back of the picture, is Mount Washington. Mount Washington is blurry in this picture, but it is twice as tall as Mount Shakora. And although Mount Shakora can be a challenging hike, Mount Washington is far more challenging and far more dangerous. And in the same way, Jesus puts into focus for the disciples the coming destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. But looming in the background, even though it might be blurry and out of focus, is something far more magnificent. It is far more majestic. It is infinitely more dangerous and infinitely more important. So let's get back to our text and let's clear up what we can. And for the sake of time, I'm going to paraphrase a bit. The disciples say in verse 1, Jesus, look how magnificent this temple is. Verse 2, Jesus says, see this temple? Not one stone will be left standing. Now talk about blunt force trauma. The temple was the center of Jewish worship. So this surely shocked the disciples, leading to their two questions. Verse 3 and 4, the disciples ask, when will this happen and what will it look like? Verses 5 through 23, Jesus tells them. The beginning will look like this. Wars, famine, nations against nation, earthquakes. He tells them false prophets will appear, perform signs and wonders, all in an attempt to deceive and lead people astray. You'll be handed over to local councils, beaten in the synagogues. You're gonna stand before kings. You're gonna witness to them. The Holy Spirit will give you the words of what to say when you stand trial. Families will be ripped apart. You'll be hated because of me, Jesus says, but stand firm to the end. There will be an abomination that causes desolation, and that will be your time to flee as fast as you can. Now let me it what Jesus is talking about here and just defend it a little bit. And remember, Jesus is giving the disciples the mountain closest to them that is in focus. This is Chikora, not Washington. Jesus is telling them that persecution and trials are coming, and they're going to be awful. Everything Jesus said would happen did happen during the time of the early church, handed over to councils, beaten in the synagogues, earthquakes, standing before kings, witnessing via the power of the Holy Spirit. When you read through the book of Acts, which chronicles the life of the early church, all of that stuff happened to Paul and the disciples before lunch. And then in verse 14, Jesus comes back to the destruction of the temple and the Jerusalem. And Jerusalem. And he said, this all occurred at the hands of the Roman Empire, 40 years after Jesus said these words, Rome and its pagan idolatry, this was the abomination that caused desolation. The temple's never been rebuilt. And further, Jesus says in verse 30, these things... Which in the Greek lexicon refers all the way back to the disciples' original question: When will these things happen? Jesus says they will happen within a generation. In a Bible, a generation is 40 years. The temple in Jerusalem were leveled in 70 AD, 40 years after Jesus said this. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where this all of it discourse is recorded were all written to prior, prior to 70 A.D. How do we know that? Well, we know that because none of them record the destruction of the temple. Why does that matter? Because as we just read, Mark writes in verse 14, let the reader understand. Well, that only helps the reader if they're reading it before 70 A.D. And in verse 14b, Jesus tells them to flee when they see this abomination at their gates. And that is exactly what they did. The first century historian Eusebius records this exact event. Those who had ears to hear Jesus' words fled in 70 A.D. to the nearby town of Pella, where they were spared the wrath of the Romans. Those who did not were ruthlessly slain or sold into slavery. The historian Josephus recorded at this time that Rome ran out of wood because they crucified so many Jews. And they sold so many off to slavery that they wound up selling them for less than a pair of sandals. This was, as Jesus said in verse 19, days of distress unequaled from the beginning. But just like in the hiking picture I showed you a few minutes ago, looming in the background of Jesus' foretelling of that destruction is something much, much larger. Notice, the disciples never asked about the end times. But Jesus is using their questions to answer a much larger, much more important question that they're not asking In a way, Jesus is using the hike up Chikora to explain the hike up Mount Washington. He's using the destruction of the temple and the leveling of Jerusalem to point to his ultimate return. Jesus says in verse 24, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. And then in verse 32, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And again, even though this part of the picture is in the background and not totally in focus, Jesus makes two things crystal clear. The king is coming, and no one knows when. And I want us to look at these two truths for the rest of our time and apply them in two ways. First, missionally, and second, personally. First, missionally. Something struck me for the first time as I studied through this passage. Look at the differences between the first time Jesus comes... And the second time, Jesus comes. The first time, it was a star that led the wise men to Jesus. The second time, the, falls are, the stars are falling out of the sky. The first time, Jesus comes in vulnerability and weakness, born in a stable and placed in a feeding trough. The second time, he comes in great power and glory. The first time the angels burst onto the scene singing glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to whom those in whom his favor rests. The second time, the angels come to gather those on whom God's favor rests. Why the differences? Other than a baby growing up to a man, why the differences? Because the purpose is different. When Jesus stepped into this world, taking on human flesh and being born of a virgin, he stepped into this broken world to bring salvation, to make a way for man to be right with God. That's the gospel, that's the good news that Jesus came into this world, lived the life that we could not, died the death in our place that we deserved, and took the wrath of God and rose three days later from the grave. And when we believe in him, for forgiveness of our sins, his perfect standing with God becomes our perfect standing with God. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but that the world would be what? Saved through him. When Jesus returns, he does not come bringing more salvation. He comes to bring final and complete restoration between mankind and God creation restored back into proper relationship with God. This is what God has been working towards ever since Genesis chapter 2, ever since Adam and Eve in the garden. And what Jesus tells us here in Mark 13 is that he will finish what he started. And that is infinitely good news Because when we look at the world we're living in, the pain, the suffering, the injustice, the inequity, the violence, the division, the sickness, it is so easy to lose hope. The wars, the weather, the false prophets, it's all getting worse. But do you know how much pain and suffering and injustice and division will coexist in the presence of Jesus' pure glory? None. None. So how does this apply to our mission, as followers of Christ? Because Jesus never tells us to sit back and relax and enjoy the ride as the world burns while we wait for him to fix it all someday. In the first 20 plus verses of this chapter, Jesus paints a horrific picture for his disciples. It's going to be bad, then it's going to get worse then it's going to look like hell on earth. And in the middle of Jesus telling them about unparalleled distress, he says this in verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. He never once told them to back off their mission in the midst of the suffering. In fact, when Jesus ascended into heaven, 40 days after he rose from the dead, The state of the Christian church was the following. 120 tops, scared followers, locked in a room in Jerusalem. That very day, as promised, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, and in the next 50 years, the gospel was spread to three continents, dozens of cities, hundreds of churches were planted, and tens of thousands gave their life to Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters... We know what type of world we are living in. But what type of world are we living for? To think rightly about Jesus' return is to burn for, to labor for, to live for this restoration in our church, in our homes, in our marriages, in our relationships, at our work, with our coworkers, in our neighborhoods, with our time, with our money, and with our talents. We cannot shrink back from mission in fear. We must move forward in faith. And the fact that no one knows the time of his return tells us that we cannot assume tomorrow. I won't belabor this point, but think of what your yesterday would have looked like if you knew that Jesus was coming back today. Think of how you would have reordered your priorities, your emotions, your concerns. When we lose sight of the coming king, it is so easy to become lazy about our mission. And a complacent Christianity abandons the call of Jesus. And if we are consumed with the coming king, It becomes so easy to pull away from culture. And a disengaged Christianity abandons the heart of Jesus. Thinking rightly about the coming return of the King should wake us up from any spiritual sloth. It should bring urgency to our missional living and propel us into this broken culture as ambassadors of the King to come. But before this coming return can shape us missionally, it must shape us personally. What does Jesus' return mean for each one of us? Well, there are probably a thousand things, but let me just give three quick pieces of encouragement. Number one, it means Jesus is our ultimate hope. Jesus says in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So know this, if you put any trust in the stuff and the things of this world, it will be turned into dust. Your bank account that brings you security, your possessions that bring you comfort, your career that brings you validation, our political parties, our earthly agendas, social media, gone. But also know this, that if you or a loved one suffered at the hands of this world, cancer, leukemia, COVID, if you were abused, abandoned, rejected, if you lost a loved one too soon, know this, the return of Christ means the end of suffering and the death of death itself. Eternal hope can never be found in a political party. Or a platform, or a program, or a paradigm. Eternal hope is found nowhere and in nothing other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. Number two, Jesus' return means that he will bring ultimate justice, freeing us to extend everlasting forgiveness. When Jesus returns, he will leave no stone unturned as he exacts God's justice. All of the injustice in the world today and those who perpetrate such crimes will be dealt with in total. If you've been wronged, know that the justice Jesus brings will set that right, which means you are free to forgive now and walk in that freedom now. Way too many Christians walk around drinking sip after sip of bitterness from the cup of unforgiveness. But forgiveness is a gift from God that frees us from that bondage and from that bitterness because when Jesus returns in Him, the ultimate judge returns. And number three, it means we must be prepared. Seven times in Mark chapter 13, Jesus tells his disciples to be awake, to be ready, to be on guard, to be prepared. What does he mean by that? Well, let me let scripture shed light on scripture. Listen to these words from the apostle Peter. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. This whole section talks about the return of the Lord. Peter writes, Peter is not talking about playing Christian dress-up. Against the backdrop of everything being destroyed by fire, as we look forward to Jesus' return, he calls for holy and godly living. The word picture for holy and godly living, anastrophe, it means the desires of your heart manifested in action. As we desire Jesus' return tomorrow, we live like him and for him today. (laughs) Hands on the plow, eyes on the sky, watching and working and working and watching. We fight for purity and holiness and unity and against gossip and slander, and fear, and spiritual adultery, and greed, and pride, and division, and anger. Get into his word. Get into a discipleship relationship. Get into a small group, a Bible study. Get on mission with your brothers and sisters in your neighborhood. Get into prayer. Repent. Confess to one another. These are not things designed to cure boredom. These are essential components to our living a holy and godly life. Now, there is so, so much more to this. But brothers and sisters, at the very least, Jesus' imminent return fuels our mission. It gives us ultimate hope. It brings ultimate justice and should inspire us to holy and godly living. But there's something else. There's one more difference between Jesus' first coming and his return. At the start of Jesus' ministry, he's probably 30 years old. He stands up in the temple, he unrolls the great Isaiah scroll, Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet, and he reads from chapter 61. Taking it upon himself, talking about himself, Jesus reads this, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops... And he stops because the very next verse in chapter 61 talks about the day of the vengeance of our God. And when Jesus was born into this world, he did not come to bring God's vengeance. He came to bear God's vengeance. But when Jesus returns, he does not come to bear God's vengeance. He comes to bring it. When Jesus returns, it is not just a day of ultimate restitution. It is a day of ultimate reckoning. Jesus is not coming back to play games. He's not coming back to make nice. He's not coming back to make friends. He is coming back to make war and to judge the world in absolute righteousness. The justice he executes comes on the heels of the judgment he brings. And when the gavel drops, the decision is final. There is no court of appeals. If you are playing Christian dress-up, if you have not yet bent your knee to Jesus, hear me clearly, you will. The question is not if, the question is when. And on that day, every eye will behold the wrath of God poured out on all of those who have rejected his son. And every knee will bow, and every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you're wondering why Jesus has not returned yet, go look in a mirror and point your finger. You are the reason... Earlier we read from 2nd Peter chapter 3 verses 10 and 11 but listen to verse 9 The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise to return as some understand slowness instead he is patient with you not wanting any to perish but all to come to repentance Jesus does not want you to perish He wants you to come to repentance. His return is not meant to scare you to death, but awaken you to life. Turn from your sin. Put your faith and trust in Jesus today. Do not assume tomorrow. The King is coming, and no one knows when. Let Jesus' promised return replace your hopeless ending with endless hope. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, it is a dangerous thing for me to stand up here and proclaim these truths and not myself be shaped by them. God, Father, help us. Pour your mercy out on your church. With the coming return of your son and its unknown timing, would it fuel our mission as if he was coming back tonight? Father, would we be shaped by your providence and your grace and your mercy? Jesus, you come to bring ultimate hope, but you also come bringing final destruction. Your heart is that none perish. That's why you came in the first place. Holy Spirit, would you awaken us? Would you awaken your church? Awaken your people? Send us into this world as messengers with this good news that the gates of heaven are open today and that there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. Would your return shape our mission? Would it shape us personally? Father, would we move out in this world being salt and light into a world that so desperately needs this good news? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.